a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us as we uh, mark yet another excursion into wrong think. Our program brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You know, I feel like I want to apologize only because I'm going to spend a little time talking about COVID. I, it's, it's just a part of life. But here's the aspect that I would like to bring up for your consideration. And I want to preface this with the understanding. I know there are many voices out there. There are innumerable voices to which you could turn to get a perspective of what's going on. And we probably all have our own little slant. Some are a little more uh, uniform than others. Mainstream media, I'm looking at you, but hey, uniformity's always been a sign of a free society, right? There's nothing about a controlled media that, that could be at play. Nonetheless, I appreciate you giving me a chance to, to offer a point of view that you may not find elsewhere. I get it. You're taking a risk. And for all of it, I, for all I know, I could be as full of it as a Christmas goose. It's possible. I could just be dead wrong. But I appreciate you taking the chance and checking out this program. And, and hopefully I'm providing something that is of value to you that at the very least gives you um, a little bit different slant on the world, as well as giving you a little bit of encouragement that, uh, you know, it's not like all is lost. Definitely some challenging stuff, but we're trying to make sense of it. Now, look, we all know people who seem to live in a perpetual state of crisis. Hopefully we're not that person, but we know people who, you know, drama just seems to break out wherever they happen to go. Lately, it seems as though American society is being kept in a state of crisis. We're not alone, by the way. It's happening to societies all across the world. But just here at home, we're being kept in a state of crisis over a virus that is survived by more than 99 percent of the people who catch it. John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education has earned my trust as someone who is looking for good information literally on a daily basis. I, I spend most all of my free time trying to find good sources of information that can, can offer me a little bit different view of what's going on. Okay, I can, I can learn from the mainstream stuff, but like I say, there's a lot of narrative to sort through. If I want a really truthful take, there are a few trusted voices. John Miltimore is one of those voices. He's put a lot of thought. I think he's a very principled writer in how he approaches this. He doesn't come off as, you know, spittle-flinging. You know, he's not, he's not uh, frothing at the mouth to say what he has to say. Now, listen to this headline. Mask mandate reinstated in San Francisco as daily COVID deaths hit zero. This is not just true in San Francisco. It's happening at other places, too. But the point here is mask orders have the effect of keeping the public in a perpetual state of emergency. And maybe that is the point. Now, that's a hard thing to consider, but I want you to hear the case that John Miltimore makes in laying out the information. 
San Francisco was one of seven Bay Area counties that announced Monday it would be reimposing a mask requirement for all indoor public settings following a rise in COVID-19 infections. The Associated Press said the new restriction comes as public health officials struggle to contain the highly dangerous or highly contagious uh, Delta variant. Now, Dr. George Hahn, Deputy Health Director for Santa Clara County, said it is unfortunate we have to do this at this point in the pandemic. None of us wanted to be here, but the virus has changed. Now, Sundari Mace, Interim Health Officer for Sonoma County, said the Delta variant accounts for roughly 95 percent of new COVID cases in the region. Mace said we are now facing a much more aggressive and contagious opponent right now. Government statistics show that 93% of San Francisco residents over the age of 65 are at least partially vaccinated. 86% are fully vaccinated, while 84% of all residents over 12 are at least partially vaccinated. So San Francisco is just one of numerous local governments across the country that has passed or is considering passing new restrictions as average daily cases in the U.S. have crept back up to 80,000. That's a figure we haven't seen since back in February. Fortunately, though, the Delta virus may indeed be a more contagious opponent. Opponent, rather, It's also proven to be a less deadly one. As the data show, the rise in cases has not been accompanied by a corresponding surge in mortality. Now, just as an aside, do you hear mainstream media talking about this? I kind of like to keep an eye on uh, the, the flagship media of, of Salt Lake City and probably for the state of Utah, that being uh, KSL. And there, I can't think of a more high quality operation out there. They really are remarkable. But they are so attached to this fear porn. You never see anything reported regarding COVID that isn't done with, with, there's a flavor of fear to every story they do on COVID. I don't know if it's deliberate or not. I notice it. I certainly pick it up from other sources. And, and again, this is part of that uniformity that I see in how the media reports things. Why don't people trust the media? We'll actually touch on that subject in a few moments, but It's because they keep hyping crisis, crisis, crisis without giving any context. I mean, I don't want to sound callous, but I'm actually not terribly alarmed by the idea that, yeah, there's a Delta variant out there. Yes, it appears to be more contagious, but at the same time, the death rate is extremely low. In fact, as John Miltimore points out, in in San Francisco, COVID mortality has all but disappeared. The current seven-day rolling average COVID death count is zero. He backs this up with the data from the CDC. So why does Leviathan love crisis? All right, we probably all have some answers we can give there, but let's... Let's hear what John Miltimore says. He says, many will argue that mask requirements are not overly invasive measures and therefore are prudent as a mere precaution. After all, the case can be made that masks can offer protection against COVID-19 and help us wind down the pandemic sooner. But the problem is there's a vast difference between recommending a policy for protection and mandating one. And as Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser recently demonstrated, many public officials seem more fond of mask mandates than actually wearing masks themselves in social situations. In fact, AOC did that earlier today. 
came out to give a give a message. She's properly virtue signaling, wearing that mask. But boy, the photo op started, and off came the mask, and there was her smiling face there among a bunch of other unmasked people. I mean, you could be forgiven if you got the impression that maybe there's just a little bit of theater attached to this rather than, no, no, this is a necessity for protecting ourselves. Additionally, Miltimore says, mask orders have the effect of keeping the public in a state of emergency. As Stanford professor of medicine, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, recently told Fee, there seems to be a reluctance on the part of many to admit the pandemic is all but over. Bhattacharya told Fee's Brad Palumbo, we should be declaring a great and resounding success. The COVID emergency is over. We need to take COVID seriously, and there are still vulnerable people here and abroad left to vaccinate, but we can start to treat it as one disease among many that afflict people rather than an all-consuming threat. Now, this reluctance should come as little surprise. History shows that public officials struggle mightily to relinquish powers claimed during periods of emergency. In his classic book, Crisis and Leviathan, economist Robert Higgs noted that crises served as some of the biggest government power grabs in modern history. The New Deal was born out of the crisis of the Great Depression. The War on Terror and the Patriot Act were the rotten fruits of the 9-11 attacks. It's not accidental that these massive expansions of government followed crises. Emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. Those are the words of Nobel Prize winning economist Friedrich Hayek. And once they are suspended, it is not difficult for anyone who has assumed emergency powers to see to it that the emergency will persist. That's the other half of his quote. But it's not just Austrian economists who've observed this phenomenon. It's one well-known in popular culture. In The Revenge of the Sith, Chancellor Palpatine, soon to be Emperor Palpatine, promises he'll relinquish his emergency powers, which he's accepting with great reluctance. The power you give me I will lay down when this crisis has abated, Palpatine says. But of course... He has no such intention. It makes you wonder, maybe it's not just about masks. The COVID-19 pandemic, says John Miltimore, may very well end up serving as a catalyst for massive government expansion. I don't know if we're at the may very well. I think it's actually happening. He says it's important to understand it's not just about mask mandates. That's just one example of government overreach and a convenient one for lawmakers because they seem so benign. But even as mortality has plunged because of vaccination and natural immunity, the pandemic is being invoked to justify vaccine passports, cancellation, even a naked expansion of power like the eviction moratorium. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are in the process of moving to Utah, particularly southern Utah, first of all, I'd like to shake your hand and tell you what a lucky individual you are. I have lived in some beautiful places. Well, a couple of beautiful places, a handful of beautiful places. Southern Utah, especially the St. George area, probably top of the list in terms of just 
endless geographic beauty. But here's the point. Homes are not staying on the market much these days because there are lots of people with the idea of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to move. They're fleeing the coastal areas. They're going to the Intermountain West. Utah has one of the hottest real estate markets ever. So if you find the home of your dreams, you've got to have your financing squared away. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. We are talking decades of experience in getting the job done, knowing exactly what the lender as well as the borrower needs, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Trust the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, an equal housing equal housing opportunity lender, to get the job done for you. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Call them at, at 435-703-4522. Or if you're in St. George, stop in at 619 South Bluff and talk to them. So what do you think about the, the idea promoted by, uh, by John Miltimore in his column about how COVID deaths may be at zero in some areas, but they're bringing back the mask mandates. It's almost like there's, there's a crisis to keep alive. And as long as that crisis is in place, that's the cheat code so that we can do whatever we want and you can't say anything about it. Now, that doesn't really surprise me that much, only because I trust or I don't trust politicians in the first place. I know two things about politicians. They will say anything in order to get elected, and I know they will do anything in order to keep the money flowing to them so that they can get reelected. They've got to fund those election campaigns. So with that in mind, you're dealing with a very amoral profession. Now, looking at the media... I sometimes wonder why they get the why me, you know, attitude of why wouldn't people trust us? And then I see articles like the one uh, recently posted here by Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Why most people don't trust the mainstream media. And he brings up a recent article in the Washington Post about the January 6th protest at the Capitol, which goes a long way toward explaining why that trust has broken down. It's written by a Post reporter named Mike DeBonis. And it focuses on allegations that the FBI infiltrated the ranks of the protesters and actually helped them or helped to incite them to illegally enter the Capitol and engage in mayhem after so after doing so. Now, interestingly enough, the tone set by DeBonis is one that's oftentimes found in mainstream media when it comes to alleging any wrongdoing on the part of the federal government. The article has a mocking tone to it, suggesting that the people making this allegation are conspiracy theorists for actually believing federal officials would do such a horrible thing. But there's a critical sentence in this article, and that critical sentence is, the FBI declined to comment. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, why is that line important? Because there are two ways that a reporter can go when he's writing a story about this kind of allegation. Did the FBI have informants inside the crowd urging them on participating in breaking into the Capitol? That's a legit question. And on the one hand, he says the reporter can mock and ridicule those making the allegation, pointing out they haven't produced any evidence to support their unfounded claim. On the other hand, he could aggressively go after FBI officials and demand a definitive yes or no answer instead of simply settling for no comment by the FBI and then engaging in an aggressive in, in, and then he could engage in an aggressive investigative effort to determine whether there is evidence to support the allegation. Now, DeBonis chose the first route and Jacob Hornberger asks, but why? After all, a no comment answer by the FBI is about as incriminating an answer 
as can be, short of an outright admission of wrongdoing. That's because if the FBI were not guilty of the wrongdoing, it would undoubtedly say the allegation is false. But the FBI clearly did not do that with its no-comment answer. Its no-comment answer leaves open the possibility, maybe even the likelihood, that the FBI was involved in wrongdoing. Now, DeBonis makes a big issue out of the fact that the people who are making this allegation have not provided any evidence to support their allegation. But what people have pointed out is a similar course of conduct from the FBI in other cases, which would be enough to cause any reasonable person to assume it might have engaged in the same course of conduct with respect to the January 6th protests. For example, consider the case involving the alleged kidnapping of Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer. DeBonis is aware of that case because he links to an article from BuzzFeed News about the case. And that article alleges that the FBI played a major role in inducing the defendants in the case to commit to the kidnapping. Now, of course, if you're a listener to this show, we covered that some time ago. Even if what the FBI allegedly did wasn't enough to support a defense of entrapment, its alleged actions are nevertheless enough to cause any reasonable citizen, including investigative journalists, concern. But that's not all. As journalist Glenn Greenwald has documented, the FBI has a long history of inciting people to commit acts of domestic terrorism. The idea is to incite people to commit crimes so the FBI can be praised and glorified for busting them up. And he links to Greenwald's July 24th article, FBI using the same fear tactic from the first war on terror, orchestrating its own terrorism plots. He also recommends the article we shared with you from Jim Bovard recently. Will more media, media bias save democracy? So given the history of the FBI in engaging in this kind of misconduct, Jacob Hornberger says you would think that any journalist worth his salt would say, I need to get to the bottom of this latest assertion, or latest assertion rather. I need to know whether the FBI did the same thing here. Rather than mocking and ridiculing these people by pointing out they furnished no evidence to support their allegation, I need to do my job and go after the FBI to see if there is any evidence to support the allegation. But rather than do that, DeBonis goes off on the other track, implicitly assuming the FBI would never do such a thing and implicitly assuming those making the allegation are nothing more than conspiracy theorists. So in a nutshell, that is why so many people don't trust the mainstream media. And it's not a recent phenomenon. You can go all the way back to Operation Mockingbird, the CIA's secret program back in the 1960s and 70s. Their job was to acquire CIA assets from within the mainstream press, whose secret job would be to come to the defense of the national security establishment whenever necessary. By the way, during the Cold War, they had no problem finding people to do this. Hundreds of journalists on the FBI's payroll recruited or the CIA's payroll and and recruited by the CIA having to sign secrecy agreements the whole nine yards. They're very tight lipped about it, as are those media sources. And I think it was like the top 24 media sources in the country. The news sources, news organizations were in on it, too, but they are very tight lipped as well. So it's okay to have a little bit of doubt. It's a little. It's okay to wonder. Would they, for instance, interfere with uh, um, the flow of information in how our news is reported? Now, I'm not talking about they're going to put them out there and give them a, a list of talking points here. Talk about this, and then to, then we'll talk about this. 
But I would ask you to please, if you watch mainstream news or if, if you can stomach, you know, doing it for, you know, an evening sometime. Note the uniformity, the absolute agreement on which buzz term or which buzzword or which phrase is going to be used to describe whatever is dominating the new news cycle. Maybe the CIA is behind it. They have been before. Sometimes they'll leak and then independently confirm something in that leak. Oh, see, well, it's been backed up. And, you know, the press reports it as as gospel truth. I just find it interesting that the these members of the press would operate from the assumption that government would not engage in wrongdoing. I mean, the more I learn about the CIA, the more I begin to understand why um, Edward Snowden can never come home. He blew the whistle on a really dirty organization who does things that we're better off not knowing. And far too many people are okay with that arrangement. It's not a good idea. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since I've done a shout-out to uh, my buddy Carl, the C-Train, as we call him. I like to say hi just every so often because uh, Carl is one of those people who will give me feedback on how I'm doing. And that's open to anybody, by the way. If you want to go to the uh, BrianHydeShow.com, there is a marvelous feature in each day's show notes. You can actually send me a message, tell me you know what I'm doing right, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I love it when uh, when I hear from my listeners, and I, I love good, honest, constructive feedback, and even the haters. You know, I, I may not enjoy what you're saying, but the fact that I've got your attention is very flattering. So thank you. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of a backwards way to say it, but there we go. Now, I try not to wallow in political news, but when I want a solid take on what's going on, I have found it hard to beat Pat Buchanan for having a good take. He has been around Washington long enough. He's been part of the inside crowd. I don't think he's part of the insiders now. I think he's kind of a thorn in the side of the establishment. But, hey, he he has a pretty solid take. And I was very intrigued with his take on America's great leap forward into socialism. Now, I'm going to warn you right now, when we dive into this, we're going to be talking about um, some of the growing numbers of debt. And this is economically what I'm about to share is some pretty sobering news. And I'm going to follow it with a story about the real cost of public debt and how it's not measured just in dollars, but it also is measured in terms of freedom and loss of freedom. So if, you, if you're OK with facing some tough truth, come with me. Let's go forward. Let's face it together. Um, but if you're not, if you're if you're looking for something a little more affirming, this may not be a segment you want to stay around for. Just seven weeks into his presidency, Joe Biden signed a one point nine trillion dollar covid relief bill. Now, among the largest spending bills in history, it was passed without the vote of a single Republican. And that plan sent payments of up to $1,400 to most Americans, extending a $300 per week unemployment insurance boost until September, September 6th. It expanded the child tax credit for a year. It also put $350 billion into state, local, and tribal relief. This past weekend, a bipartisan group of senators crafted a $1 trillion measure to repair and expand the nation's roads, bridges, ports, airports, and broadband. Last week, this trillion-dollar infrastructure plan got a green light 
from 17 Republican senators, including Senator Mitch McConnell. Boasted Biden, the bipartisan infrastructure deal is the largest infrastructure bill in a century. It will grow the economy, create good-paying jobs, and set America on a path to win the future. Sorry, that just sounded like another giant honk from Clown World, but moving on. Pat Buchanan says, up next is a $3.5 trillion measure to remake America, which is also to be enacted without GOP support via a process called reconciliation, which enables the Senate to pass measures with a simple majority. That $3.5 trillion measure would expand social and environmental programs, extend the reach of education and health care, tax the rich, and take on the challenge of the century, climate change. Among the programs funded are universal pre-kindergarten for all three- and four-year-olds, two years of free community college, clean energy mandates for utilities, and lower prescription drug prices. Medicare benefits would be expanded, amnesty extended to millions of illegal migrants, and all that's needed for it in its enactment into law is a Democrat majority in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's House, the votes of 50 Democratic senators, and the signature of Biden. Now, after effecting passage of his $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, if Biden gets the $1 trillion infrastructure proposal and the $3.5 trillion package, he will have enlarged federal spending by $6 billion. This would constitute the greatest leap forward towards socialism of any American president, with Biden's only rivals being previous record holders, Franklin D. Roosevelt during the 1930s New Deal and Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society in the 1960s. If Biden succeeds in getting all of this, Pat Buchanan says, this would not only be a quantum leap toward European-style socialism, but it would also cross a divide for America, from which history teaches us there is no return. Today, we talk not about billions of dollars, but trillions. And that $6 trillion in spending Biden is reaching for translates into more than $6,000 billion dollars. I mean, we have a hard time getting our minds around numbers that big. As of today, Buchanan says, neither the infrastructure bill nor the $3.5 trillion omnibus bill is a done deal, with the former looking more probable than the latter. But if both are passed, they would create new records and new realities for the U.S. government. The federal debt would exceed the U.S. economy for the first time since since World War II. The deficits for this year and last, roughly $3 trillion in each year, already exceed any past deficits since World War II. Passage of the $3.5 trillion omnibus bill would constitute a quantum leap in the number of Americans dependent on the federal government for the necessities of life. It would increase America's ratio of tax consumers to taxpayers. It would be tantamount to an admission of belief that the real engine of economic growth in America, the truly indispensable power or provider, rather, upon whom an ever-expanding share of the population depend for food, rent, health care, education, and cash income, is the government of the United States, not the American free market system. As for the Republican Party... The conservative party of lower taxes, balanced budgets, and free market solutions to social problems. The fiscal debate will be over in a way it never has been before. Passage of that $3.5 trillion omnibus bill would represent the triumph of great society liberalism over Reaganite conservatism. In his inaugural address, his first inaugural address... Ronald Reagan declared that government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. 
In his uh, State of the Union address in 1996, President Bill Clinton seemed to concede the triumph of Reaganism over liberalism and socialism. Quote, we know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem. We have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. Now, in 2021, Pat Buchanan says Biden and his party are saying Clinton was wrong to concede Reaganism its victory. When there's a big crisis in the country, FDR was right. Big government is the solution. So if the terrain looks unfamiliar, Pat Buchanan says that's because we are crossing a new continental divide. We are entering Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez country. And it's kind of disturbing to see. Because what we're dealing with isn't just incredible amounts of government spending. This is the larger. This is a symptom of a larger problem, which is we have a government which will not recognize limits on its powers. I mean, if we can just get back to the real reason for why government was created in the first place, I know this escapes a lot of people. I don't think it's widely taught in civics now, but the whole purpose behind civil government is to protect and guarantee your innate natural rights. Things that existed before that government ever was called into existence for the purpose of protecting them. I know that kind of flies in the face for some people who want to control more of what's going on in other people's lives. But if government has no meaningful limits to its powers, if it can do anything that it wants... Well, I'm just going to I'm going to express what may be an unpopular opinion to some. If government isn't willing to abide by its part of the contract, which is the Constitution. If it cannot abide by its clearly enumerated, spelled out powers in that document. Then are we beholden? Do we have to be loyal to it? Do we have to hold up our end and promise to do our part to be good citizens and uphold and support that government? I don't know. That seems pretty one-sided to me. And I'm not saying everybody, you know, rise up in rebellion. I'm just saying withdraw your consent. Withdraw your legitimate regard for that government that recognizes no limits to its powers. It's not like this is without precedent. Read the Declaration of Independence for crying out loud. That's what free people do. When government stops recognizing what its proper role is, starts acting against them. I'm sure we could come up with a good list of grievances, just as, you know, Jefferson did in the original declaration. It's the right of the people to either alter or abolish that government and to elect a new one that actually will do its job in protecting their liberty. I mean, I can't think of an easier way to put it, that liberty was the purpose for which our system of government was created. Now, it may be imperfect, but I don't know that you can point to another government on Earth that has had more stability and a people that have enjoyed greater opportunity and freedom than we have in the time since, you know, the founding period. That seems like it's on the verge of going away. And I know that sounds alarmist, but I think we probably better look at this and see it for the problem that it is. Because it also opens up the possibility, at least for those who are concerned, what do you intend to do about it? 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to take a quick time out here and say uh, thank you to one of my sponsors. That would be lifesavingfood.com. If you go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, there is a link right there that will take you to their website. And, and I want to just give you full disclosure here. Um, this, is, this is a situation in which they are an advertiser on my program. And when someone, when one of my listeners purchases through lifesavingfoods.com, there is a commission that is paid that helps support my show and helps support me moving forward. So I just I want to be clear on that. You know, if that's if that strikes you as wow, that's that's really shady, Brian. Sorry. I think it's a really valuable product and I think it's a really timely product and I want to put it out there for your consideration. But just understand, not only would you be doing yourself the favor of putting aside something for a rainy day, but you also would be doing me a supreme service and favor by helping to support this program. So thank you in advance for those who will take a look at it and for those who choose to purchase from lifesavingfoods.com. Okay, Lifesaving Food. Sorry, it's singular. Just want to make sure we get you to the right website. So we talked about the incredible amount of debt that is being taken on. Over $6 trillion, which I mean, uh, that's just $6 trillion. It's not like it's $20 trillion. But to, to even con- conceptualize what $1 trillion is, is remarkable. That used to be more than the entire GDP. That used to be more, you know, than the, the government would collect in a single year in taxes. It's it's just insane. And we tend to measure public debt by dollar amounts, or at least that's the only way politicians will talk about it. But there's an excellent article from Jonathan W. Plant on the American Institute for Economic Research. And it says the real cost of public debt is not a dollar amount. It's freedom. I want you to hear the case that he makes here. He says, as the United States national debt soars above $29 trillion, the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, warns that Congress will run out of cash by the fall unless the debt ceiling is raised. Now, talk about debt has always been a contentious issue in policy. Recently, after the pandemic, however, such talk is becoming more rampant in academia. Indeed, several academics have written books directed to the general public, arguing that the amount of debt shouldn't be a concern. For example, last year, Stephanie Kelton published a book titled The Deficit Myth, arguing for the use of monetary policy to offset the costs of debt for the purposes of macroeconomic stability. Now, moreover, this fall, a book titled In Defense of Public Debt will be published, making a similar conclusion, but slightly different from Kelton's book. Public debts provide a means for macroeconomic stability, in this case, amid times of emergencies and crises. The model underlying macroeconomic stability is an aggregative framework that sums up all the cost and income output for a given economy. He says, using this type of model, some macroeconomists argue that internally held public debts are of no concern in the aggregate due to the law of large numbers. The cost of public debt are canceled out by predicted benefits. Now, does that sound strange? Is this kind of model truly appropriate for a world of heterogeneous people? Among others, Nobel laureate in economics Friedrich Hayek said one of the downfalls to the macroeconomic framework 
is that it hides the differences among among microeconomic data, which in the case of the public debt are the costs imposed on people. Some estimates have calculated that cost of debt per person to be $87,000, an exorbitant amount. But to be sure, that figure doesn't consider that individuals in younger generations will likely not receive Social Security or Medicare due to the funding running out and the population rising. If such phenomena occur, the cost of these individuals in these generations will be higher. Additionally, there's an even more important cost when we seriously take the claim that in the aggregate, the costs of public debt are canceled out by the gains from public debt. Namely, such canceling out means that some people receive a net benefit from public debt, while others receive a net cost. In other words, costs are not spread equally among people ever at any point in time. And when you see public debt in this way, we realize it's a means of wealth redistribution for whom the government favors the elite at the expense of the others, the masses. Such an argument has recently borne out with empirical proof. He links to it. It is this redistribution, he says, that I find to be the real cost of public debt. This redistribution is not forced on people outside of the elite, or is forced, rather, on people who are outside of the elite, some of whom are not born yet, and thus have not consented to this redistribution. As such, the real cost, due to force, is a loss of liberty a cost which may be unmeasurable. So he expands on that argument from that point on, but this is where I would just like to jump off for a moment and ask you to consider. What legitimacy is there to a debt incurred that is so steep you cannot possibly pay it off yourself, that you actually place on the shoulders of your children and your children's children, maybe even more generations on down the line, Does that not strike you as just a tad immoral? I think about a letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote, um, and I can't remember who he wrote it to. I want to say maybe it was to James Madison, but it was called Earth is for the Living. And he specifically talked about public debt and the idea that Earth is for the Living, meaning don't create debt that you can't pay off yourself. A generation that does that is creating, is uh, actually engaging in what amounts to intergenerational theft. They enjoy the benefit. I think he uses the example example of like a drunkard who goes out and drinks and drinks and drinks and destroys the bar and stumbles all over town, breaking things and, and incurs this incredible debt that he himself cannot pay off. And so now the the payment, the duty for payment shifts to his kids and their kids. Who received the benefit of all the money that was spent? Maybe this is where we get the original drunken sailor comparison. I don't know. It's the person who was out there spending the money, right? The one who was out there drinking and breaking things and doing whatever he wanted to do. But at what point did those who followed him consent to take on that debt? They had no say in the matter. That's what makes it such an immoral act. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to underscore this and make it sound like, oh, gee, what are you accusing these people of? But I've heard the term used by Jim Quinn, who publishes the burningplatform.com. This intergenerational theft, he says, is the greatest crime that humanity has ever seen. It is the greatest act of theft 
that humanity has ever seen. Because it has made promises on the basis that future generations will pay this off or what? Or else, you know, I mean, I don't know where the enforcement mechanism is, but government is going to make sure they keep paying through the form of their livelihood, their labor being confiscated in the form of taxes. Essentially, they're selling their descendants into a form of slavery. Debt slavery, but slavery nonetheless. So what do we do about it? Jonathan Plant says, in a letter to James Madison, Jefferson proposed that we change the Constitution every generation, which at that time, due to Jefferson's calculations, was about 19 years. Now, he says... Jefferson proposed this in my reading because he foresaw that public debt, the excesses of spending over revenues, can lead bondhold to bondholders, meaning the elite, controlling the masses. Indeed, he stated that the earth belongs to the usufruct of the living, and as such, these constitu- constitutions and debts should be consented to by those living rather than imposed on them by previous generations. So he says, what I propose to do here, or what I sought to do here, is to provide more analytical rigor to Jefferson's argument. And he says, I suggest we take Jefferson's argument seriously, and not only argue against public debt as a means to macroeconomic stability, but also one that can be measured in dollars. Liberty is not measurable in dollars. It's priceless. As such, we should argue against any infringement on liberty, in this case, public debt, for that reason. Now, this is typically going to cause a little bit of cognitive dissonance in some folks. And I can almost hear people now, Brian, uh, let's not be extreme. How would we take care of the poor? How would we take care of the indigent? How do we take care of the fatherless and those who are in need? And my answer is take a look at U.S. history and understand that prior to the income tax, hospitals were built, libraries were built, incredible charities undertaken, bridges, museums, All done with private, charitable donations. And sometimes uh, they actually uh, privatized and, you know, built toll roads and charged people for the use of them. You want to have good government, you've got to limit it. That means you've got to limit its power to spend as well. Check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And thanks for being a listener. This is The Brian Hyde Show.